Let's keep in touch, let's keep in touch, keep in touch with me. Drop me a line. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm so excited to to talk with you today. Melanie and I, we're talking about how to wrap up the first season of our podcast, Talk to Us at Bounce English. And what we thought would be fun for us, at least, and we hope it's fun for the audience, is uh, we thought we would just talk to each other. How did we get into this situation? How do we get into this work together? Um, what are our origin stories? <laughs> What's our deal? It's What's our uh, deal? <laughs> yeah. So that'll be the focus of today's talk. You know, Melanie, I would love you to tell the story of how we met in college and how you uh, got the measure of me pretty quickly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Honestly, I feel like it was magic. It was they met. It was Moida. Uh, no. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to take you back to the 90s, uh, to the early 90s. You know, think baggy jeans, think the Manchester sound, think um, grunge and all that bizzo. And Amy and I were freshmen at the University of Iowa. Woohoo! Go Hawkeyes! Woo! Iowa! And we were both in a program because Iowa is a very big school. For those of you who don't know that, it's a very big university. So I guess that can be intimidating to people. I mean, I loved that about it, but I'm sure it upset some people. Anyway, there's a program or was for people who were strong in kind of the, the arts and humanities stuff, you know, language, history, social science, but not so great in the quantitative world, math, uh, sciences. And basically it was a way to sort of bond with that group. I think there were maybe like 80 of us. I think it was, it's called the Unified Program. Mm -hmm. And Amy and I were both in it. Uh, and I still have friends. I think we both still have friends uh, that we met in that program, which I think is just so cool. Um, but Amy and I lived in the same dorm, I think on the same floor. And Amy, I was like, you know, if you see my grades from, which I'm not going to show anyone on this podcast, <laughs> but if you see my grades from my uh, undergrad experience, they are basically like a U shape. Like first semester, I'm super excited freshman. Then, you know, God knows what I was doing. Senior year, maturity begins to set in. But so freshman year, first semester, I'm very, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed and super eager. Um, Amy, maybe less so. <laughs> I have some thoughts about, uh, you know, how to tie that to some of the things we've discussed with our teachers about, you know, student motivation. <laughs> oh, great, motivated. great. Well, I mean, now it's because now I'm telling, you know, I we lived it as 18 year olds. Now I teach 18, 19, 20 year olds. And what I know in my elderly years is that we're all just trying to figure it out. You know, when you go to college, you're just trying to figure out college. So like, I remember I lost my keys very early in my first semester and oh my God, I was an absolute mess over it. People lose their keys, but you know, when you are in college, you're just figuring a lot of stuff out. And so Amy, I think maybe we would say she had some issues with um attendance <laughs> and I'm not throwing stones here no 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 I, I I had a great time in college so Amy would she got in the habit of knocking on my door and then sort of like 
coughing and be like, I'm not feeling well. Do you think I could borrow your notes today or something? And finally, I just said, you know what? I don't care why you're not going to class. I'll just lend you the notes. You don't have to tell me anything. And I feel like that was the moment that, that we really moment. started to become friends. And hey, whoa, cheers to us. We're almost <laughs> at our 30 year anniversary of friendship. That is like a shocking, shocking thing. Oh, it's wonderful. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I remember from because I was, oh man, I was just a terrible student. And again, we, you know, in the past, past season, we've talked with folks about student motivation. And I know Liliana did such a great job of talking about yes, why, you know, what, what you need to actually be motivated to learn. And the truth was, I just was never motivated. I mean, my mom used to tell a story about when I was in sixth grade, they got called because we were supposed to write like, I don't know, we were supposed to write like 10 book reports throughout the course of the year. And I hadn't turned any in by the <laughs> end of the year. And so, Oops. And so when my, my parents and my parents were talking to me, and so that was probably 12. And my parents were talking to me, they're like, why didn't you read 10 books? And I said, well, I read like 25 books. I actually did double, book. but I didn't actually do what was required. Like I didn't do it that way, but I actually did like more work than was required. I just didn't do it the way they wanted me to. Yeah. And that's the way it was throughout my, um, you know, at least through college, the stuff I wanted to work on, I worked on the stuff I didn't, I just kind of my way through. (laughs) And yeah, but, but once I got to grad school, I was studying something. I was very, two things. I was studying something I really wanted to, two, I was paying for it. And I was, how about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I've always been a hard worker. You know, it's about what you get out of a situation and how much you dedicate yourself to it so it's so interesting that you you know kind of share that background because I know you and you are actually incredibly organized and incredibly uh competent and you get a ton of stuff done but um just for whatever reason at that time you were not doing what was required of you and that is a story I think many students relate to. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes that's hard for teachers to understand because many teachers were good students. They're good at school. Like, Mm -hmm. like be, you know, and, and actually I've always been good at school, quote unquote. I know how to play the game and and it is kind of a game. You, you know, there's a way to do things. There's a way that people want you to do things. And I was very good at doing that stuff. What I know now as somebody who has actually been in the teaching role for almost 20 years is that, first of all, you bring a lot of personalities into the classroom. The traditional classroom, as we have all experienced it and know it, honestly does not work for everybody. It just doesn't. And somebody, and I, you know, it's funny because now I teach a writing and communications class for people, it's, it's almost like they're in the opposite of the unified program, <laughs> you know, like they are really great in math and sciences, but they are not so great and they don't really enjoy writing. And so I get a lot of initial papers, reflections from them that say, I don't usually like writing. I don't think I'm very good at it, blah, blah, blah. I have come to the belief and I, I, I'm 
I know not everybody shares it. Uh, I believe that you can actually do just about anything you want to do, but you have to first believe that it's possible for you. So that's actually in my class now, something I spend a lot of time doing to my, they don't, they don't necessarily know I'm doing it, but I'm trying to do like sort of mind tricks on them where I am just trying to convince them and show them that it is possible for them to be both good in math and sciences and good writers and good communicators. One does not mean you cannot do the other. Uh, it doesn't mean you don't necessarily have one you prefer. It doesn't mean that you don't necessarily have one that you have more innate talent in. But talent, quote unquote, can be developed for almost anything you want, you truly, truly want to do. And that doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> you know, that does not mean it's easy. Is it that talent can be developed or that skills can be developed? I kind of think talent and skill can be developed. I, I honestly believe, I mean, and again, I know not everybody's going to agree with me, but I really, you know, and, and I'm going to now bring it back to language. When I did my master's degree, which like you was a much better experience for me. I mean, honestly, my master's degree was the hands down best academic experience I've ever had in my life. I, I, I miss it. I wish I could go back and do it all over again. I loved it that and much. And it was hard. I mean, I remember, you, you know, you would work all day and then you'd have to trek on over to classes at night in London and it was cold and you weren't making much money and it was dark yeah but I was doing awesome stuff like reading about differences between the ways men and uh, women use language and how there's so much social sociocultural role attached to that and that's kind of what I want to say there's this whole theory in language which I know many of our listeners will know this idea of language and identity so my master's thesis was all about developing the identity of somebody who speaks this language proficiently because um, one of the people I interviewed for my dissertation had actually consistently failed and been at the bottom of the class in all of his English classes uh, from the time he was a kid all the way into college. And yet now he's one of the most proficient English speakers I know. What happened? Did he have a brain transplant? No. He had the opportunity to go to an English speaking country and he met an English speaking woman who he fell in love with. That is what changed. And that did change his motivation, but it also changed his identity um, from like, English is just something I have to learn. I don't really like it. I'm not good at it to... I am this person's partner, then spouse. And then the way other people treated him changed. They didn't treat him as Johnny Foreigner. They treated him as a person who's dating my friend. And mm -hmm. so what does that mean? That means that they give more language for you to practice with. They give you more listening opportunities. They give you more opportunities for you to use the language. So what happens? You get better. What changed? What changed was actually the identity. So coming back to my, uh, what you asked me about talent and skill, I kind of, you know, this is, I guess we could say talent is that sort of innate. So th those things that you just do really well right away. Okay. Yes, that is talent. And you know, you're probably not going to have that for every single skill in your life, but it can be developed. And I think 
coming back to what you said about school, okay, about your experience at school, I think what frequently happens to students at school is that they do like you know you do have a great experience in one class and your teacher praises you and says oh amy you're so good as a writer or whatever um and then you have a bad experience in school and uh someone says oh melanie you know you really need to improve your math skills and you internalize what they've said and so then you think Oh gosh, yeah, I guess I'm not good at that. And then that becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You try, you, you don't put in as much effort. So then you don't develop that skill as much. And then um, the consequences, the work that you do reflects what you already thought. So yeah, I, I think that's that's really interesting. And I it's difficult to address that in a school because every one of us is a different individual. And what might work for me in a classroom might not work for you or someone else but we're all expected to be in the same space and do the same things in the same way and that's not really how we do anything else really like like in in the working world it, you could have a job like that you work in a factory and you're doing stuff like that but many jobs require you to bring your own unique perception and, and skilled to that job. Sorry, that was like a super long answer. <laughs> no, I, that's great. That's great. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about, well, uh, so if I take us back now to early, was it late 90s, early 2000s? Okay. No, wait, when did you go into your, when did you go to Prague? I went to Prague in 2002. So this okay. question is obviously, how did I get involved in, well... Yes. And before we do that, I just, I'll share my remembrance. So Melanie and I had been uh, friends in college. We connected after college, after I came back to the States and um, we lived together as roommates for, I think a year. I'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about our, when I talk about my own teaching experience, but as Melanie knows, I've really struggled with depression my whole life. And unfortunately you know, we had kind of a falling out. We were, we did. Bit all, you know, in fairness, many roommates do. <laughs> like some of it was just roommate, you know, regular roommate stuff, but some of it was, um, we just couldn't, I we couldn't be together for various reasons. And so we kind of fell out of contact a little bit, but then we started to rebuild our friendship a little bit. And I remember Melanie had kind of gone through a rough time, but she pulled herself through it. And you're telling me about going, this is this idea, like, I'm okay, I'm going to go to Prague. I'm going to try this teacher training program. I'm really excited about it, but I'm not sure if it's really the right thing, but I'm, I'm going to try it. And I've talked to people and like, I just remember that excitement that you had, that cautious excitement yeah. that you had about making the trip. And you had worked really hard to save money so that you could do yeah. it. And, you know, as your friend, it was actually just, it was really exciting to see uh, you. <laughs> Thank you. You do that because you worked really hard to get there as well. And I knew how hard you'd work to get there. So now take us to Prague. Okay. Well, you know, Amy's right. Your girlfriend goes to Prague. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not going to Prague, going to Prague. It's, uh, you know, uh, talking about how terrible American coffee is. Uh, (laughs) If you can get that joke, please 
please do let us know if you know what movie that's from. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, uh, yeah, and you know, you're right. That falling out. I think you know what I feel like. A lot of that is that time after college. There are times in your life when you're sort of readjusting yourself. And I feel like the 20s think, are like the second adolescence because yeah, they're hard. So many yeah. I don't, I mean, I'd love to have my body and my ability to go out and party every night back, but I don't want, yeah, but I'd like to keep my brain in maturity mm -hmm. yeah, if possible. Anyway, uh, what was I going to say? Yes, I had, it was after 9-11, everybody was pretty freaked out about flying and foreigners and all this stuff. And I thought that is the perfect time to go abroad because flights are cheap and no one else wants to do it and I really do and also I was at a crossroads in my life I you know I love helping people I love languages I love traveling and I especially love learning about international cultures and people I have always have you know in my high school years my friends and I were always the ones who were friends with the foreign exchange students like for, for sure so I had very little money, but I had just enough money to get myself to Prague and do a training course there because Prague at that time was really cheap. Um, I think it's still not too expensive to live for a bit, but um, at that time you, you could do it very cheaply. And I thought I could, I could be there for a month without working and support myself and go to school. And so I did. And I think a lot of like, certainly my parents were afraid because what am I doing? Also Czech Republic sounded scary to them, but uh, I ended up being fine. It was a strange experience. I, I didn't actually I mean, I, I got along with the people in my course, but like sometimes when you take a course, like for example, my master's degree, you click with like everybody in that course and you just love it. That's how my mm -hmm. master's degree was. But with this one, I didn't, there was no one on the course that I was like, yeah, we're going to be buddies for life. Um, and in fact, I did not like my roommate. <laughs> um, she was quite young and very immature and I was also immature so I was like oh my god why can't you get it together um <laughs> also I had you know for those who know me I'm a bit of a bon vivant I would say I uh enjoy a a nice night out and um you really have to kind of buckle down on those programs so I had a few moments where uh, I didn't quite do that and it was a little it was a little wobbly there but in the end uh I I loved the teaching and I remember my first class thinking, hey, I, I really like this. I could, I could do this. This is great. So I actually finished the course with a B, which, you know, I'd love to get an A, but honestly, it's, it's, it's hard to pass, let alone get a B. So I, I actually feel pretty proud that I, you know, <laughs> had a few moments in the middle of the course and still managed to get a B, uh, which is actually what my tutors said at the end. They're like, we're a little worried about you in the middle, but you actually did a great job. Well done. Um, yeah. So, which I feel like is the story of my life and, and the story <laughs> of everyone's life. You know, you're working towards something and it's going great. And then you have some roadblocks and you deal with the roadblocks and, and then you get what you want. But I had decided, okay, my original plan had been to do my 
initial course in Prague and then look for work in Prague. I thought that was going to be great. But while I when I was on my way to Prague, I spent a week in London, a week, maybe 10 days, I can't remember. And it was actually my third trip to London. And I didn't like London very much those first few times. I just felt kind of intimidated by it. And it just is like a very, it's a very intense city and it, it moves really fast. And I, I found that really overwhelming. But this third visit to London, I absolutely fell in love with it. I absolutely fell in love with London. And when I was in Prague, I, I told everyone I, I want to teach in London. That's what I want to do. I want to teach in London. And everybody told me, it would be impossible. Like everybody told me there's no way. American teaching English in London. What are we? <laughs> well, they were like, you're never going to get a work permit. You know, no one's going to hire you because you're American. I am motivated out of spite in situations <laughs> like that. And I had like almost no money. I think I had like a couple hundred bucks, something like that. Just synchronistically my younger brother was studying abroad in London at that same time and he um my parents were coming to visit so I flew to London after I um finished my course and I think I stayed with them I can't remember exactly but I called every single language school in London and said, you know, I'm American, I've just qualified. Are you looking for teachers? And they all said no. <laughs> Except for one school. One school invited me in for an interview and you can guess what happened. They hired <laughs> me and they offered to sponsor my work permit, which for those of you who are listening, who work in this industry, I know that you're going to be like, how did that happen? I have no idea. I, I don't. I mean, my guess is at that time, this was 2002, um, the English language industry was exploding in, in the UK at that time. I mean, schools were expanding so incredibly fast. And this was a new school that had been open, I think, only for a year. And they were very rapidly expanding. And I think they just wanted an American teacher on staff, actually. I actually think that's what happened. So I got the job. I got the work permit and I got the job. And I, you know, that school um, still exists. It's called Malvern House. It's in London. And um, they paid like nothing. I mean, they're, they're, the wage was very, very low and it was very, very hard when I first moved to London. In fact, I moved to London. I'm going to say, do not do this. Do not do what I did. I moved to London with $330 in my bank account at the time. And that at that time, the exchange rate was like, if you have 330 American dollars, you have like 150 pounds. I was like, okay, that's fine. I'm going to get paid in two weeks. So no problem. Oh no, that's not how pay works in the UK. You get paid once a month and Malvern House, like they do their payroll two weeks before the payday. So I started working like exactly at that two week mark, which meant I had to go six weeks without 
getting paid on that. How did I survive? Uh, people helped me. People gave me money. People paid for things. There, there's a woman. Uh, she's a friend of a friend. She lent me a hundred pounds. She came to, I say lent because she gave it to me. Really, she came to Waterloo train station when I called her because I was desperate, and just gave me a hundred pounds in cash. And we went to the pub for an hour. And you know what? I have never seen her again. And I don't know where she is now i wish i did because i would give her that money back but what was that i said with interest with interest wow. oh, God, no, I hope wonderful wow and, and, wow wow and, and 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 that's kind of how i survived that that first initial time was that people helped me <laughs> but i i did survive and um i was not a great teacher at first but I really liked teaching and I was very determined to, to grow and improve. And I still am. And I did, I did, I got better. I got better. Eventually I was on the academic team there and what was I going to say? But you know, the wages there were still really low. Like, it's funny. Cause I look back at that place and I'm actually incredibly grateful for that experience in many ways, because it brought me to London. It was because it was growing so fast, it was a wonderful place to grow as a teacher. Um, and also, you know, I made so many wonderful friendships there that I still have so many great, great times, so much laughter, both with students and with teachers. Um, and it was fantastic. But it was a hard place to work because of the pay issue, which I know many of, of you listening will relate to that because I think we all know that the ELT industry, for all the money that's there, and there is a lot of money, frequently does not value teachers uh, the way they should be valued because of the, the nature of the industry. So about five years in, so I, I was like tied to this place. You know, the industry was exploding. There were multiple opportunities out there, but I could not leave because my work permit was there. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to do four years working there before I could apply for anything else. But then in year four, I think it was year four, yeah, in year four, the UK changed the rules and said you actually have to do five. But they had a grace period that the grace period ended, I believe, five days before my previous work, you know, my work initial work permit was effective. So I had to do another year. That's such a terrible feeling. I mean, oh, I it was had awful. that in some ways when I taught in China, but that feeling of kind of indentured servitude, like you are stuck. Yes. It was indentured servitude. That's the best way to describe agency it. to go elsewhere. That it's a really tough position to be in. And I really realizing. And it, and it was also like this kind of catch twenty two because the cost. Because the other thing that happened when they changed the law was that they doubled the cost for permanent residents. Mm -hmm. um, because permanent residents would enable me to work anywhere. And so I remember when that happened, it was actually a pretty low point for me in many ways. I remember when that happened, just like sitting on the couch being, being like, what do I do now? I can't believe this. Oh no. You know, but I, I dealt with it and I, I stuck it out and the next year I was eligible, but again, because of the wages that place, I did not really have the money to, to pay for the indefinitely to remain. And 
I was on the phone with a friend and she knew my situation and out of the blue, she just said, you know what, I'll give you the money for your indefinite leaves remain. You have to pay me back, but I'll give it to you right now. We can, we can work it out. And she did. And I did pay her back. And that really changed everything for me in London. Those first um, four years in London, five years in London were incredibly difficult. They were fun. I made really good friends, uh, but they were really, really hard. The next five years in London for me were so much better because I was able to go to another job where I made a, a living wage, a decent wage. Um, and actually that led to another opportunity, to another opportunity, which ultimately enabled me to, um, I ended up working in universities in London and I was able to put myself through my master's degree program with without any problem. So that to me is like, I'm so incredibly grateful for that. And, it, and, and this is why like, I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot at the moment. Those people who help you when you really need it, you know, I, I think it's hard. It's hard for us sometimes to accept that help, but I think we should. I think we should, because a lot of times when that happens, it's like exactly when you need it. And if you accept it and you're grateful, you're going to be able to work it out with that person in a really good way. That friend who who paid for my indefinite leave to remain, we're still good friends. Um, you know, we don't see each other very often anymore because she lives in Canada and I live here, but um, she's still a good friend of mine. And I will be forever grateful to her for doing that. So yeah, that's, <laughs> I don't yeah. know if I went in the road that you wanted, but, <laughs> but that's, I feel like that is an important part of the English teaching experience. I know that Julie, one of our guests on the podcast earlier this year, she, uh, with EAP in Ireland, they just did a, um, a seminar on precarity in ELT and how this is that was the word using that word in the pot episode and I kept going like what is that word <laughs> precarity like that it can be a precarious profession yeah the way in which it's organized you know and especially right now with COVID-19 and that impact that has been incredibly difficult as we have discussed on many of our podcasts for this industry. Many, many ELT teachers have lost their jobs. I know a school last week, they shut their doors. They gave no notice to the teachers, to my knowledge, because the country that this happened in, and I'm not naming things just in case, but this happened in a different country than the one we're in right now. The teachers were told on Wednesday that that was their last day. Thursday, teachers from a different country were teaching their students. Um, that's what can happen in this industry. I mean, that can happen at any job, you know, but um, I think that really ELT is one of those industries in which th this precarity really plagues it. Yeah. Um, I definitely want to talk more about you know, the industry now and some of these challenges, um, I guess, but I also want to talk a little bit about my own experience when I ch started teaching English. And because I think that, I think there's other teachers 
you know, that had a path a little bit similar to mine and they can either make or break you as, you know, as wanting to stay in the English teaching profession. Mm. So uh, (laughs) the last year that I was in college, my parents had, my, my parents had this great opportunity through my dad's work. My dad had been, um, you know, working off and on with customers in Asia and Korea, but he had this opportunity to move to China to head up like the sales office for their company um, or to actually to create, to build a sales office for this um, new Chinese branch of their company. And uh, my mom decided, they decided to do it. My mom retired from her job as a technical writer and uh, they, they, they went, they, they worked in China for three years. So my mom called me, I remember I was in my one of my college apartment kitchens. And she said, you know, hey, we have this opportunity. We decided to do it. Do you, you know, do you want to come? Do you want to like do something with this? And I, I said to my mother, uh, well, you know, let me think through my five-year plan. And so- <laughs> okay, Stalin. <laughs> If you know how this will fit. And so we hung up and I called her back like five minutes later and said, I realized I don't have a five-year plan. <laughs> oh my God. That is so college. Oh so, yes. Yeah, my five-year plan. Uh drinking, um, <laughs> lying on a couch, watching um, this is the 90s, like watching Beavis and Butthead or something. <laughs> oh yeah. That was the year that I kept uh, either missing my choir class or ed- ed- showing up late after the warm-ups because eight is enough reruns were on from 12 to one important I, part of the five-year plan <laughs> my class was at 150 across campus it's all about priorities uh, time management you know so i had a, a unique experience where i wasn't really wasn't like a sinophile i wasn't really interested in china specifically but i just had this opportunity that was really very much given to me so i applied for some teaching jobs I ended up getting a teaching job at Shanghai University and it was a, it was a challenge. You know, I think part of it I had taught before I had done taught piano and singing lessons and we have a lot of teachers in our family. Since then I've actually done a lot of training and workshops in my professional career. I, I enjoy teaching and sharing information, but I definitely did not have that I love this feeling that Melanie, you described, and so many of our other teachers have described teaching English. I have a lot of regrets about this period in my life and and teaching. Well, on the one hand, it was, it was an amazing experience. I mean, it was the mid nineties. I got to go to China. China had only been open to Westerners really for about 10 years. So Um, I feel like if I had gotten that phone call, I would have been like, yes, when are we leaving? (laughs) Yeah. You know, for me, I was just like, all right, fine. sure. Wow. And my parents really facilitated a lot of it. Like helped me pay for the plane ticket. Oh my God. I know you're like, in great. Plus, you got to live in like some fabulous expat apartment. You know, you didn't even have to slum it if you didn't, I didn't want to. I didn't live with my parents, but I did get to visit their fabulous expat apartment. Not bad. And Not I had my own little bedroom. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's pretty. Yeah, it was good. nice. Yeah, it was. It was. It was all. They were all all so many things where I had these wonderful opportunities, but I just didn't. 
I don't know. I didn't really appreciate them. So like on the one hand, it was this amazing experience and I got to do so many things, both good and bad. I mean, you know, some of it was just culture shock. Some of yeah. it was just, oh, yeah. some of it was just, I hadn't really lived in any big city. Yeah. And so I went to the third largest city in the world. Some of yeah. the culture shock I had was really just urban, you know, like yeah. urban culture shock. I didn't know that at the time, but it, on the other hand, it was one of the worst years of my life. I was wow. so depressed that I was actually suicidal at one point. Oh my gosh. And, um, Sorry you know, to like, hear that. like you, I had signed a contract. And so I'd felt very much stuck. And the reality was I wasn't, I could have just gotten on a plane and left. What Always. You're never really but, um, stuck. I didn't feel that way. <laughs> yeah. And my parents were there and, you know, they were like, well, you know, you made a commitment. <laughs> oh God. You know but, what? You no, know, it's not. Anyway, so get over it you were like 22 like what do they expect you know she's 22 you know she's going back to america like come on everybody would have gotten over it but i get it i get it i would have felt the same way at that time i did tell him i'd do it (laughs) so i was in a weird place where you know we've talked especially in the last couple of episodes or last yeah last couple of episodes about this idea of well, teaching English must be easy if you can speak English or anyone can teach English if you have a person who can speak language. And we know that that is a perception that is very damaging. And unfortunately, you know, that's kind of what it was. I I got a job through um, the university's economics department and I was, but I was like the only, I mean, I was the only English teacher working with these students I was teaching students that were not much younger than myself. Yeah. Um, you know, and the previous teacher had left behind some materials, but I didn't have anything. You, didn't, didn't, have, have... you didn't have any training. It's no. hard enough when you do have the training, let alone being thrown in there. I mean, it's, it's hard. Yeah. So there was, a, there was a language school on premise at the university, and that ended up being a really... Oh, such a wonderful thing because they were, first of all, they were very kind to me, even though I was not one of their teachers. Sure. They're TEFL teachers. They're nice. They're going to be yeah, like, like <laughs> what, do you, what do you need? And you know, what I, what I got to observe was some of them were just really genuinely fond of, you know, teaching English and they were, yeah. you know, they're fond of relationships with their students. And, oh yeah. You know, they were, I learned a lot from, from them. Um, and I have very, a lot of fond memories, but I did not do well. <sighs> When I look back, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to engross myself in the culture. Like some of the other teachers I saw, I didn't want to be friends with my students. I was depressed, but in many ways, I was also kind of a spoiled, spoiled Westerner. I had a lot of fear and it made me very defensive. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it just was a real disservice to my students. But then I, I don't want to complain like, oh, it was terrible, but there were some challenges. I was just not mature enough or trained enough to deal with them. Like I remember at one point they said, okay, well, we want you to start teaching a class on another campus, but Uh they didn't give me any framework other than go, go talk English to them. Oh, well that that's totally English language teaching. You know, I had to take a bus there. The class had like 45 students in it. It was like in a huge classroom. And then I was yeah. there for like three hours. I had, you know, I kind of ate lunch alone and then I waited for the bus to come back and yeah. I just didn't know what the fuck I was doing. 
and honestly that experience like hey we're gonna send you over here um that is like so elt it's not even funny like oh hi good morning you know how you thought you were teaching advanced this morning um actually you're teaching pre-intermediate and it's in 10 minutes bye-bye like that, <laughs> that has happened to so many people oh, you know and it's I do think in this particular field, you have to be really good with that type of situation. Not everybody is. I mean, I think you are very good at being flexible, but that it does take some getting used to. And it yeah, is and really I, overwhelming. Know, I, and I felt terrible. I felt like I was doing a bad job. I still feel a lot of guilt about the quality of education that I was even providing to those students. I mean, they were really smart students and I don't think they gained a lot from my particular class. Um, if that could be memories, you know, that was 30 years ago, but you know, I didn't like that, that extra class. I didn't handle it well and they eventually just discontinued it. But you know, my point, and we've talked about it with the podcast, you know, you really can't just teach. You really can't just, no matter how much you know the subject, whether it's piano or carpentry or whatever it is, you need to have some type of plan or experience for how to share that knowledge. And so, you know, I, this idea of anyone who speaks English can teach it. I'm so excited to work with you and to try to break that, um, that assumption. Cause it, there is still some of that in the industry. Oh uh, and, yeah. And also it's not just that it's because you're a native speaker you're better at it than someone who has gone to study English as a second language their whole lives. And now they have a master's degree or a PhD and they're an amazing teacher, but English was not the first language they learned. There's a huge amount of prejudice against teachers who are uh, initially second English language speakers. Yeah, that's a good point. There, it, it has been acknowledged and there are attempts to address it, but it's still a massive, massive problem in this industry. Yeah. So I, that was my experience. And, you know, in retrospect, I just, I wasn't driven to, to, I wasn't motivated and driven to, to get into that industry. But I would say for anyone who is interested in doing, you know, teaching English or traveling, do it. It's awesome. It's such an incredible experience, but get some training, <laughs> any training. Don't just think you can wing it. <laughs> Well, I mean, we talked to Jeffrey and his experience and your experience. These are all very typical English teacher experiences. Um, you know, listening to your story about being in China, you know, I'm, I'm hearing it. And of course, I'm your friend and I, I know that you went through it. But I also am hearing it through the perspective of somebody who's trained and worked with a lot of teachers. And everything that you're describing is a very typical experience for teachers as they grow and particularly new teachers as they develop skills. I have certainly worked with people who are amazing teachers, outstanding teachers who actually didn't have traditional training. But in my experience, it does tend to be harder without the training. It takes you longer to learn how to do things. And in my experience as well, I've noticed that those who, who end up in this profession in that way, it's harder for them to articulate why they're doing what they're doing in a classroom. 
and and adjust and and make changes. So I I am I am definitely of the belief that at least at least a one month training course is hugely beneficial. It teaches you how to lesson plan. It teaches you what kinds of things lower level learners need compared to higher level learners. Uh, a good training program will allow you to practice with a group of students who are usually attending for free. So they know that you're a student teacher and they know it's probably not going to be the best lesson they've ever had. And you never know because definitely uh, trainee teachers do put together rock star lessons. But that is like sort of a safe environment to sort of develop those skills. And then even if you pass that class, you're still going to have a learning curve in your first year of teaching. You know, I like to tell, because one of the things that, one of the things I've learned, I think, as an adult is any job, it's going to take you like six months to just be really good at the job. Like no matter how good you are, there's always there's always going to be a period of transition when you move into a new position. And um, I don't remember what my point was, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, my point is don't be so hard on yourself. Everything that you're describing is super typical for a trainee teacher and even more so for somebody who was like thrown in it. Um, And I think many of our listeners will actually relate to you. I mean, I recently reconnected with someone um, in a, business capacity who was actually in one of my very first classes and he told me that and he was like oh hey Melanie do you remember I was in your class when you were a new teacher and as soon as he said that I was so embarrassed because I just thought oh my god you've seen me in my absolute worst as a teacher god knows what I was doing with those students I'm sure it wasn't great you know (laughs) but students actually they They do actually put up with a lot. I frequently think they put up with more than they should. Students, you know, some students can be quite demanding. It depends on the context in which you're teaching, but many students are very, very forgiving of, of, of teachers. And by the way, if they like you, that can go a long way. And that is not always a good thing, as I think many people who have had uh, jobs where they train other teachers, like you will go into a classroom and you'll see that the teacher really needs to improve a lot of skills to effectively teach these students, but they're so likable. <laughs> the yeah. students will never complain about them. Now, is that a bad thing necessarily? I would say maybe not. The students are happy. They like their lessons. They're still getting English. They're just not getting um, what they could be getting. And I, I think that's that's what I would say. A lot of students put up with less than what they could get. I, I When I have been in positions of authority, like academic authority, I I, I tell my, I tell students, you know, if, if you are not happy with something in your class, you should complain, but they tend not to. <laughs> I mean, they yeah. do. I know yeah. there are people who are listening. They're like, wow, I just had five student complaints today. Yeah, I know. I know they complain every single day, but most of them don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your experience in China, I wonder what it would be like now. I think it would be so different. Oh, so I different now. Yeah. But don't don't be so hard on yourself. I think these are really typical experiences that many people will relate to. Yeah, it was a combination because I had so many advantages and privileges, mm-hmm. but yet I still I just still felt like crap all the time. And, and obviously like I'm, I'm feeling emotional as I talk about this. Sure. Of course. Um, Because like I said, it was, 
such a wonder, like I got to see so much stuff, but it was also a terrible experience from my perspective because of the depression and just the feeling like I didn't have agency to leave the Mm -hmm. the situation or the country, but also feeling like I didn't have the skills to do the job I was hired to do and getting paid to do. Right. Uh, man. All right. Well, I will try to let some of that guilt. (laughs) You need to forgive yourself. Your students don't even, yeah, just it's gone. You're okay. You, you know, that, that happened. It's over. You're fine. Your students forgave you long ago. They, they didn't even notice. <laughs> you know, you're the one who noticed. Um, and it as honestly, it's just the most typical experience on earth for, for new teachers. That's how it goes. You, you make a lot of mistakes and you, what you forget is that you're putting all the blame on yourself, but actually the blame lays with the people who hired you to a large extent. They didn't give you any training. They gave you minimal support. You know, if, if I'm bringing in a teacher who, um, who I know is a new teacher, I know that teacher is going to need a huge amount of support. They're going to need, they're probably not going to have, um, I mean, they could have fantastic lessons. It does absolutely happen, but it's also incredibly typical for them to have a few uh, misses along the way. I mean, I when I was a brand new teacher, they my my director of studies put me down to teach a an exam class, first certificate class, which is, you know, we're talking, as I said, a lot of students are very forgiving. Guess what? Students taking high stakes exams, not so forgiving. <laughs> they need to pass this exam. Yeah. And it's really important that they have a good teacher who can help them. So I was really still learning. And when you have a new teacher, it is honestly best to give them a class that's like, intermediate or pre-intermediate because that's right in the middle the students can understand a lot of what you say and the language points that you're teaching them are not that difficult that's like if I'm if I'm scheduling a new teacher that's probably where I'm going to put them because I know that's going to be the easiest spot for them why would you I, I would not give an exam class to a new teacher but I was given one well guess what after about a week of me teaching it the entire class walked into my directors of studies office and said we want a new teacher um, and I don't blame them I was not good enough to be teaching that class at that time so I felt terrible about it at the time I feel embarrassed about it even right now but the truth is what the heck was my DOS doing assigning that class to me? That was an insane choice for that person to make. So yeah. what you're kind of missing from this story is that there are other people who put you in that position who actually had a responsibility to support you. You know, they knew that you didn't have any experience. They, they did what many schools do, which is, are you breathing? Do you speak English? Great. You're ready. You can teach university level classes. But you know, one thing that was, oh, sorry to cut you off. One thing that I have found interesting as we've, you know, done our interviews is that the industry is changing in many ways and that that is now, I think, more atypical. Well, (laughs) what I I heard from you and from other teachers is that now to get teaching jobs, you're kind of expected to have a, you know, a master's in linguistics or have taken a TESOL course or uh, gotten some certification. Like there, it, there now seems to be building the credentials that are required for teachers. That seems to be coming more and more standardized. 
Is that correct or incorrect? But I would also say it kind of depends. It depends on where you're teaching. So if you're teaching in the UK, yes, you're going to need a CELTA. You're going to need a BA probably. You know, as Jeffrey pointed out, Korea has become more stringent. But the truth is, if there is a big demand for teachers, well, suddenly those qualifications matter a lot less. I mean, anyone who has ever had to staff a big program quickly and then and like teachers are in demand, which means teachers are getting better offers and they're leaving you, knows that sometimes you kind of have to be like, well, they've done this. So I guess, I mean, it does depend, as I said, it depends on the country. It depends on the context. But I think while that's true, it's also easily thrown out the window depending on the needs or at least softened a bit so yeah but uh, is it though <laughs> yeah, but. that's that's, yeah, that's but. what I would say <laughs> oh. I'm sure I, I am 100% sure if you are an, a, a first language English speaker and you don't even have a, 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 a undergraduate degree if you were in the right place at the right time guess what you're gonna be in a classroom tomorrow like it's just the fact training <laughs> what was that I was like get training well for sure for sure but I actually think that this is part of a larger issue in this mm-hmm. industry it, it, it comes from a lack of of taking this industry seriously and that that is at all levels and I actually think it's related to sort of an anti-foreigner bias that is in um, that's just inherent in this industry learning English is a very valuable commodity for the people who need to learn it. But the way in which the majority stakeholders in that look at it, and many of them are monolingual English speakers from countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, South Africa, uh, they look down on second language speakers. They look down on people who can't speak English. I'm not saying that people who are in that profession do necessarily but what I am saying is I think that bias is inherent in the industry and there is a negative impact on the value uh, assigned to people who teach English as well as the seriousness with which everybody takes it from teachers all the way up to the top and I you know I think it's good not to take yourself too seriously, to be honest. But I actually think, as, as we have just talked about, the types of skills that you do as a language teacher in other contexts are valued much more highly and priced accordingly. And I think that's an interesting topic for part two. I am so excited to dig deeper into that. Oh, you know, it's been wonderful to chat with you today. I know there's a lot going on and, but uh, man, I love you. You're the best. I love you too. You're the best. And you know what, audience, you guys are all the best. We love you. You're the best. In there. If you're listening to this, we love you and we think you're the best. So value <laughs> yourself today. That's right. Woo. Woo. Okay. That was fun. Yeah. Come on, baby. Let's keep. Let's keep in touch.